Um, it's good to see you guys. I hope you were able to have a restful afternoon. Um, and, you know, I, I've really been enjoying uh, the worship songs that you guys have been singing because, as I said, they're very unfamiliar to me because our congregation is still um, still singing songs from Australia. <laughs> and I really love the rich, robust theology uh, that these songs really convey. And it, it really gives me hope that as our congregation keeps growing, as our congregation matures in its theological uh, outlook, that um, that it'll also be reflected in the songs um, that are sung. Not to say that the songs we sing are mature or not gospel-centered, because they are. Our, our worship team does a great job. I meet with my worship leader once a month to talk about doctrine and theology, and so he's discerning um, what's good and, and what's not. But it's so wonderful just to hear songs that are just so intentionally biblical and robust. And um, yeah, even if it doesn't have those fancy little riffs and, and all that stuff that young ears love to hear, not mine. Um, but with that said, I hope you are enjoying this retreat. I'm really enjoying uh, being here as a retreat speaker because I don't do it too often. And I never regret um, doing it once I'm here. I always resist doing it. But once I do and I commit it, it's really such a blessing. So thank you for allowing me to come and to serve you and to be uh, blessed um, uh, by you as well. Uh, tonight, we're going to take a look at a parable of Jesus found in Luke chapter 18. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 18. And we're going to read the first eight verses of Luke 18. And um, as you guys always do, I invite you to please stand as we hear God's Word being publicly read in reverence to God's word. And it reads as follows, And he, Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. And once again, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, now we ask that as your word was publicly read and as we hear it being preached, oh Spirit, would you truly take the words of a weak servant and really make it powerful and ministering to the souls of those who are hearing it. Father, we ask that as we come before you humbly at your feet, asking for you to teach us Yet again, help us to see the beauty of your Son. Help us to see the power of your Spirit who lives within us. And help us to see your marvelous love. The great love that has caused you to plan out salvation. To send your Son into executing it. And to giving us your Spirit to living that out in application. Father, we pray now, especially tonight, as we have our final night together at this retreat, thank you so much for what you have done already, and we continue to pray for your mercy and grace to be upon us. And now, Father, we pray that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. You know, it's been wisely said 
Hurt people hurt people. Let that sink in for just a moment because it's quite profound, right? Hurt people hurt people. And because that is true, that also means the following is true. Abused people abuse people. Bully people bully people. Shamed people shame people. And here's the last one. Cursed people curse people. In other words, people who get cursed end up taking that curse out on others. Okay? Linger on that last statement for just a moment as I read to you these words of Jesus that's recorded for us in Luke chapter 6, starting in the 27th verse, we read, But to you who are willing to listen, I, Jesus, say, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Is he not saying that as you attempt to live out your calling as Christians of being a blessing to the world, that the world is going to respond by returning that with hatred, with evil, with vitriol, with curses? Indeed, Jesus is saying that. In fact, he repeats himself over and over to his disciples on this very idea. Case in point, John 15, verse 20, he says, A slave is not greater than the master. Since they, the world, persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. As followers of Christ, Jesus tells us over and over that as you live in this world, and as you attempt to live out the commission that he's given to us, as we try to live a life of blessing to the people of this world, Jesus says you need to expect You need to be aware. You need to not be surprised that as you attempt to bless the world, the world will respond in being negative, judgmental, harsh, cruel, and even cursing because of that. Now, one of the most uh, common reactions that we're so tempted to react with when we experience this kind of reaction from the world as we try to bless it is that we just want to give up, throw in the towel, and just forfeit the responsibility and the mission that God has given us to where instead of one of being a blessing to the world, we just want to recycle the curse that was given to us and thereby be no different than the rest of the world, right? And we just want to say, you know what, I'm done, I had it, and this is it. And the question that I want to ask us tonight is how do we make sure that as faithful followers of Jesus, we do not succumb to that temptation? How do we make sure that instead of recycling the curse that we get when we try to bless the world, we stubbornly, consistently, and faithfully return with wanting to be a blessing to the world. Well, our text tells us, and Jesus tells us, in this story of the parable that centers on a widow. And he tells us that it comes through prayer. Specifically, being optimistically prayerful. Optimistically prayerful. Jesus says that if you do not want to succumb to the temptation of just recycling the curse, right, as the world responds to our mission to bless it, you have to be optimistically prayerful. And so let's take a look at tonight's passage so we can understand what that means. And so three things that I want to share with you tonight when it comes to being optimistically prayerful. Number one, the reason we need to be optimistically prayerful. Number two, the dynamics of being optimistically prayerful. And finally, the way to be optimistically prayerful. The reason, the dynamics, and the way to be optimistically prayerful. So let's begin with the first point, the reason we need to be optimistically prayerful. You know, if you ever read the Bible, you will encounter multiple reasons as to why it tells us to pray. Sometimes it says the reason we should pray is because we need to adore God and revere God through our 
prayer. Prayer becomes a form of praise. That's what the prayer of adoration is, as we do in our services, right? The other times, the Bible will say the reason you need to pray to God is to give thanks, to acknowledge the wonderful bounty of blessings that he gives to you and acknowledge how he is a giver of good gifts to his children. Other times, the Bible will say that we need to pray to God as a way of contrition, right? To confess our sins and to repent and acknowledge the ways in which we have strayed from the things that God has called us to do and to be. And then other times, the Bible will say another reason we need to pray is so that we can ask for the things that we need because He is our faithful Father, or even pray for others in what they need through intercession. But here in this text, Jesus identifies for us another reason why we need to pray, a reason that maybe most of us are not aware of. So let's take a look at our passage again. Starting in verse 1, it says this, And He told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always to pray and not lose heart. Notice what Jesus says as to why we should pray. He says right here, the reason why you should pray is so that you do not lose heart. Right? Now, what in the world does that phrase even mean, do not lose heart? It just seems very vague and very nebulous. Well, perhaps if we read this verse in another English translation, it could clarify. So let's do that by considering how the King James Version puts it. You know how the King James translates that phrase, do not lose heart? It only uses one word, faint. Right? Where essentially Jesus says, the reason why you should pray is so that you will never faint. And you're thinking to yourself, that sounds utterly ridiculous. Because it's not like any of us in here has a chronic problem of passing out or blacking out. I'm sorry if you have that medical condition, but that's not a typical uh, struggle that most people have, right? And so you're thinking, why would Jesus say this, that we need to pray so that we don't faint? But again, remember, the King James Bible is over 400 years old. Our English language has evolved, so words today didn't mean the same thing as they did back then. So if you look up a 400-year-old English dictionary, and you look up the word faint, you come to discover that that word simply means to lose heart. Well, that's what our translation says. But to not be terrified, to not be anxious, to not be fearful, one Dictionary says to not be a coward, to where you're so terrified, to where you feel so helpless that you just want to run away and avoid the situation that is terrifying you so much. Okay? Now, when you understand that understanding of the word faint, all of a sudden the reason Jesus gives us why we should pray makes complete sense and it totally applies to us. Does it not? Of course it does. Because as I said in my introduction, we live in a curse-filled world. A world that sometimes, many times, makes us terrified, makes us anxious, makes us feel like we are in helpless situations. I mean, didn't we just live this together as a country last year? You know, it was reported on the news that the day after Donald Trump became president that the Canadian immigration website crashed, right? Because millions of Americans were so frantic about the idea of living in a Trump America, right? It goes without saying that we clearly are living in a time where more and more people are constantly feeling depressed, constantly feeling anxious, constantly feeling helpless. Case in point, in 2015, the New York Daily News reported on a study done by the New York Department of Health, and they found something very interesting. One out of five New Yorkers struggle with some form of mental health disorder, ranging from mild depression, panic attacks, bipolar depression, and paranoid schizophrenia. One out of five New Yorkers, that's 20% of the city of New York, and that's just not Manhattan, that's all five boroughs, 
That's a lot of people. In fact, the people who did the study were so shocked that they actually said this in their report. Major depressive disorder is the single greatest source of disability in New York City. That is crazy. Think about that for a moment. Out of all the disabilities that people struggle with in New York, hands down, major depressive disorder is the single greatest one. That is startling. And when you consider the dangerous behaviors that people do as a way to cope with these issues, such as drug abuse, alcohol addiction, promiscuous dangerous sexual activity, even senseless violence, right? This issue of anxiety and fear and depression is such a startling thing. Clearly, depression in all of its forms and all of its variation is a real problem in New York. And if what they say is true, that what happens in New York happens everywhere else, that means that this is not just a New York problem. It's a Philly problem. It's a Lansdale problem. You guys are from Lansdale, right? Chefon's. <laughs> Chefon's problem. Did I say it right? It's your problem. It's my problem. Right? And one of the biggest questions, if not the greatest question, that mental health professionals have been asking for years is, why is this the case? Why does there seem to be a growing, pervasive, gloom and doom mindset where people now more than ever are feeling this growing sense of anxiety and paranoia and this growing sense of helplessness? Well, there have been many attempts by psychologists and scientists to explain this. But it wasn't until a landmark study that was done over 30 years ago by a professor of psychology here at the University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Martin Seligman, who many people say he has cracked the case. You see, he's done a very extensive study to try and figure out what the core issue is behind all of these mental health issues, whether it's depression, paranoia, anxiety, uh, severe forms of bipolarism. And he says that it's this thing known as learned helplessness. Anyone in here ever heard of learned helplessness? Encyclopedia Britannica, does anyone even know what that is anymore? <laughs> Encyclopedia Britannica gives this definition of learned helplessness. A mental state in which an organism forced to bear aversive stimuli or stimuli that are painful or otherwise unpleasant becomes unable or unwilling to avoid subsequent encounters with those stimuli, even if they are escapable, presumably because it has learned that it cannot control the situation. In other words, Learned helplessness is a mental condition where you feel so powerless against the things that are against you that you just basically give up. You no longer try to resist, you no longer try to run away, you no longer try to overcome the thing that is against you. And Seligman argues that the reason why people fall into this mindset that leads to further disorders like depression and phobia and anxiety and so forth is because of three mental things that happen in a person's head. And he identifies them as permanence, pervasiveness, and personalization. Permanence, pervasiveness, and personalization. Listen to what he says in his book. He writes this quote, people who suffer from learned helplessness do three things. They first think the cause of bad events in their lives are permanent, permanence, rather than temporary. For example, diets never work versus diets don't work when you eat out. Secondly, they think that their problems are universal, pervasive, rather than specific. I'm repulsive versus I'm just repulsive to him. And thirdly, they think they are personally responsible for their problems, personalization, rather than the situation itself, such as, I'm such a failure, versus, that was a very difficult test. 
So according to Solomon, people feel utterly helpless when they feel they're in a bad situation that's either permanent, it's never going to change, it's pervasive, they can never get away from it, or it's personal. I must have done something wrong. I am responsible for these issues. And as a result, this way of thinking leads to the pervasive disorders that are plaguing our society seemingly now more than ever. Now you're thinking to yourself, wow, this is a nice psychological lesson. What does that have to do with our passage for tonight? Well, let me show you. Consider the story that Jesus is telling us. This parable surrounding this poor widow. If you knew anything about the culture that Jesus lived in, you would know that the one group of people, if not the group of people who was the most helpless of all, were widows. Specifically, widows who were in the situation that Jesus is painting this widow is in. Consider this word, this commentary word from Dr. Warren Wiersbe, a brilliant Bible scholar. Listen to what he says in his commentary on this passage. He writes, quote, The widow had three obstacles to overcome. First, being a woman, she therefore had little standing before the law. In the Palestinian society of our Lord's day, women did not go to court. Since she was a widow, she had no husband to stand with her in court. Finally, she was poor and could not pay a bribe, the usual way to get a judge to hear your case, even if she wanted to. No wonder poor widows did not always get the protection the law was supposed to afford them. So according to Dr. Wearsby, this woman had three things going against her, right? She was a woman, she was a widow, and she was poor, financially poor. Right? Now, thankfully, in our day and age, when a woman becomes a widow, she does not have to face these kinds of struggles, thank God. But don't think that because that is true, that this character is totally irrelevant for your life. Because as I hope to show you just a moment, she is very relevant. Right? Because consider these three challenges that she had to face. They eerily match the three conditions that... Seligman says a person needs to have in order to develop this lured, helplessness mindset. Because, for example, she was a woman. Discrimination against women in the ancient world was pervasive, which means no matter what city she went to, no matter what group she appealed to, they would always discriminate against her because of the pervasive discrimination against women. She was dealing with a hardship that was permanent. Her husband was dead, right? That's a permanent situation, right? This guy was not going to come back from the dead, at least not yet. Right? She was stuck in a permanent hardship that was never going to change. And of course, she could have easily seen this poverty that she was in as a personal thing. Because one of the prevalent theological beliefs that was common back then is this concept of retributive theology. If you read through the book of Job, you see a clear example of it where one of the things that people said about how you can tell whether God has disfavored you and has judged you is poverty. This woman could have totally looked at her poverty state and internalized it in such a way and said, the reason why I'm poor is because God is punishing. I must have done something bad. I must have done something to deserve this. Right? This widow is a prime candidate for someone to suffer from learned helplessness. And if it is true that learned helplessness is the underlying cause to all of these mental health disorders which all of us struggle with, that means this widow represents you, she represents me, she represents all of us. You see, Jesus is telling this story because he wants us to identify, to look at ourselves as the widow in the story. And because that is true, do you realize what that means? It means what Jesus has her doing in his story is what he wants us to do when it comes to prayer. What he has her doing in the story is what he is calling us to do when it comes to prayer. But that's the question. What exactly is that? Well, 
to explain, let me go to my next point, the dynamics of being optimistically prayerful. Now, I find it so weird, in a good way, because I would never say Jesus is weird to his face or in a pulpit, right? But it is weird that Jesus is trying to teach his disciples about prayer, and he does it through a character who never prays, right? It's a parable about prayer, but the character, the main character, the widow, she's never praying. So clearly, it's not a case where Jesus wants us to imitate how she prays, because the lady never prays, right? But what it does tell us is that there's something about this widow that Jesus says we are to imitate and then apply to our prayer life. There's something characteristic about this woman that we need to take away and apply into our prayer life. And then the question is, what is that? Well, I think we can figure it out when we look at our passage again. Let's read our passage from verses 2 to 6, and it reads as follows. He said, in a certain city... There was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Okay, so here's what's going on. This woman somehow, someway was egregiously wrong. Most commentators think that it was over a financial matter. Somebody owed her money. She was uh, rewarded money. And the person who was supposed to give her that money did not do it. And so the text tells us she goes to a judge whom Jesus described as someone who did not fear God nor respect man. And that's simply Jesus' way of saying he was a corrupt, unjust, unfair judge. Okay? And if he was like most judges back then, the only way this widow would get a hearing from this judge is if he if she bribed him. And furthermore, if she wanted him to rule in her favor, she had to make sure that her bribery was much more than the adversary that she was going against in her case. That's pretty bad, but you know what? It gets worse, because one of the things that you may not realize, in the ancient world, judges were itinerant. And that means is that they didn't have a central location like a Supreme Court or District Court where they were centralized and everyone came to them. No, they had to go around to all the various districts within the city and here you have this poor woman who needs immediate justice, who has no money to bribe the judge, right? And then she has to figure out where this judge is, because it's not like they know the schedule ahead of time, and then figure out, how am I going to get there? There was no public transportation back then, no public transit system. Clearly, this woman has tremendous challenges facing her. And yet, if you observe this woman's behavior, you don't get any sense of her falling into any sense of despair, she is not deterred by these challenges, but instead, what does she do? Well, the judge tells us in his own words what she does. Verse 4 and 5, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. This woman is tenacious. This woman does not give up. This woman is pestering the judge to make sure that he rules and rules in her favor. This widow kind of reminds me of my dear old grandmother down in Philly, actually. You know, those old school grannies who survived the Korean War, you know, and just gets their way. Right? That's who this widow was. Now, here's the question. If it is the case that Jesus wants us to look to this widow and imitate a characteristic of her, and one of the characteristics of her is that she's constantly pestering the judge so that she can finally get what she wants, is Jesus implying that's how we should pray to God? Is Jesus telling us that the lesson of this parable is, hey, when you pray, you need to just keep nagging and pestering God so that you can finally get what you're praying for 
basically, bless me, bless me, help me, help me, do this now, do this now. And God's like, all right, I'm tired of your nagging and pestering. Fine, your answer is prayed. Now go, leave me alone. Is that what Jesus is saying? Now, you know that can't be the case because if you're aware of the other teachings of prayer that Jesus gives, he says we are never to pray that way. For example, Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, when you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. So based on what Jesus is saying here, clearly he's not contradicting himself with what he's saying in this parable. He does not want us to imitate the pestering nature of this widow as we pray to God. And so the question is, well, what is it then about this widow that we are to imitate and then apply into our prayer life? Well, I think Jesus tells us the answer in verses 7 to 8. Listen to what he says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, the thing I want to draw your attention to is not any specific words or a set of words, but I want you to pay attention to the overall grammatical tense of what Jesus is saying. Notice that Jesus speaks almost exclusively in the future tense, right? He uses the word will, which is the future tense verb, right? Will not God, will he delay, he will give justice, will he find. Over and over, Jesus is speaking in futuristic terms, right? He's very future-minded. Why? Why? Well, let me ask you. When a person, when you feel anxious, when you are despairing, and when you feel hopeless and helpless in a situation, what time frame of mind are you thinking at that moment? Are you past-minded? Are you present-minded? Or are you future-minded when you go through your anxieties, your fears, your stresses, your worries? What tense, what time frame is all of that coming out of? Consider these words from Pastor, not Pastor, Professor Ed Welch, who was a teacher of mine and Pastor Andrews in seminary. He's a Christian counselor. Listen to what he says. There is a storyline to human life that includes a past, present, and future. Fear spans them all. Fear can be triggered by the past, react to crisis in the present, and anticipate them in the future. Its pervert time zone, however, is the future. Dread, panic, nervousness, worry, and anxiety all speak of our potential future vulnerability. Worriers are visionaries without the optimism. An experienced worrier can go for days, leapfrogging from past to future and back again, never landing in the present. What is he saying? He's saying that those with an anxious state of mind, which is the same thing as a learned helplessness state of mind, right? People like this are always thinking of the future, and it's always a gloomy future. It's a future of no hope. It's a future of just doom and anxiety. And if there was anyone in ancient Israel society who should have felt such a gloomy outlook of their future, it should have been this widow. But again, you look at how she behaves. You look at the way that she's reacting. In spite of the past tragedy of her husband's death, in spite of the current crisis that she's in of her poverty, she has such a robust confidence in the future to where she is certain that this judge is going to hear her case. And not only that, get her justice. This Widow has profound, profound optimism. And Christian, that right there, that is what we are to imitate as we pray to the Lord. Jesus is telling us that as we pray, we need to have a mindset, we need to have the assumption, 
the conviction that our future is hopeful, our future is optimistic, no matter how bad the past is, no matter how crazy our present life is, when it comes to what we believe is happening in our lives, in our future, there is hope. I mean, haven't you noticed that when you pray, you probably don't even think of it from a conscious standpoint, but when we pray, we're always praying about the future, right? Even if the thing that we're praying about originated in our past, or if it's something that we're currently going through now, every prayer is directed towards a future event. We never pray about something that already happened, right? Unless it has a future outcome. But we never just pray for something in the past that just stays in the past, right? When I was in college, I was part of a Korean Christian fellowship, and there was a guy who was a little bit quirky, right? Just a weird oddball. And let me give you an example of why he's weird. I don't know if he's still weird. I don't know where he is now. But the guy <clears throat> sends out a mass email to the fellowship, and he writes, Guys, I'm in real need of prayer. I just finished my organic final. I didn't study for it, and I couldn't answer half of the exam. I left it blank, right? Please pray. Not that I'll pass the exam. Not that I'll pass the class. Please pray that God will give me an A on the final. Like, no joke. This guy was uber, not to say anything bad about charismatic, but the guy was very charismatic. And he's like, please, just pray that God will supernaturally make sure that this test that I took three hours ago will be a, a success. I looked at that and I chuckled and I deleted it. <laughs> Why? Because our prayers are always future-oriented, right? Even when we pray about current problems or problems that originated in the past, don't we always pray that these past and present problems will be resolved in the future? Of course we do. And that's the mindset that Jesus is teaching us that we need to have. The optimism of the future that we need to possess. Just like this widow did. right? But Jesus says this, the way you develop that is when you constantly, consistently, and chronically pray with a hopeful optimism. right? He's essentially saying is that when you want to develop a mindset where you don't gravitate towards worst-case scenarios in your head, right? But instead, have an op optimistic, hopeful future, is that you need to get into the habit of chronically praying with hopeful prayers. Hopeful prayers. Because here's the thing. The more you pray with a certain optimistic posture, that actually changes your outlook in life, right? It actually trains and strengthens your hope muscles for the future in a stronger and stronger way. Prayer has that kind of transforming effect. Listen to how one theologian, Henry Nouwen, a Catholic theologian, how he says prayer works. He says this, quote, Prayer is not introspection. It is not a scrupulous, inward-looking analysis of our own thoughts and feelings, but a careful attentiveness to the one who invites us to an unceasing conversation. As a result, prayer is a radical conversion of all of our mental processes, because in prayer we move away from ourselves, our worries, our preoccupations, and self-gratifications, and direct all that we recognize as ours to God in the simple trust that through God's love, all will be made new. What's he saying? He's saying that the act of constant prayer, praying day and night, exercises our hope to become stronger and stronger to where no matter what present crisis that we're in, no matter what past mistake keeps haunting us, the future is in the power of the God who lives in the future and deeply loves us. Let me say that again. The act of constant prayer, praying day and night, 
exercises our hope to become stronger and stronger to where no matter what present crisis we are in or what past mistake keeps haunting us, the future is in the power of God who loves us and who actually lives in the future. Did you know that? No one lives in the future except for God. He actually lives there. He's already there. Right? He doesn't catch up to time. Time catches up to him. This is the dynamic of optimistic prayer. This is why we need to constantly get into the habit that as we pray, we don't assume a gloom and doom mindset of what is to come, but instead we follow the example of the optimism of this widow that no matter how hard our life has been, no matter how hard our life is now, we have the conviction that what is to come is in the control of the God who deeply loves us, who is in full control of everything, and therefore we keep praying, and as we do, we become more confident of that hope. Now, I know some of you in here might be Debbie Downers, like myself, right? And you hear this like, uh, I want to believe what you're saying, but how can I really be sure? Because, you know, we don't know the mind of God. We don't know what he might do. He's sovereign. We're Calvinists, right? Don't we tend to be gloomy where God can smite us down and we can say, yes, Lord, give me more. You're all glory to you, right? And it's kind of like that's how we can feel. And we can let that color and therefore degrade any sense of optimism that he calls us to have. So how do we overcome that? And that leads me to my final point, the way to be optimistically prayerful. Read again with me verse 8 of our passage. Jesus says, I tell you, he will give you justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Here, Jesus ends our passage with a startling claim. He says, unlike this wicked judge in my story who just delays and delays and delays helping out this widow, unlike that judge, I, when you pray to me optimistically and with faith, I will respond to your prayers speedily. Okay, so I've gone through four different commentaries preparing this message. And here's the thing. This is a very hard verse. And I looked at it, and all four of them completely skipped this verse. <laughs> they don't mention anything. I'm like, well, what's going on here? And I know exactly why commentators don't want to touch this verse. You know why? Because they know and you know that your real life experience doesn't seem to correspond with what Jesus is saying, right? How many of us in here have prayed with sincerity, with confidence and hope that Jesus, I believe you're going to answer this prayer, you're going to do it in your perfect timing, and it still hasn't happened? Maybe you're in a chronic situation where you're sick, or someone you love is sick. You've been praying for years. God, I, I trust that you're going to do this. You come to a retreat, and you say, God, I'm praying to you now. You are confident, and you're still waiting. Not months, but years. Or maybe those of you in here have a loved one who doesn't know Christ, and you've been praying for them for decades, and you're just saying, oh, God, I, I believe you're going to do this. I'm confident in your perfect timing. Meanwhile, it hasn't happened, and they're getting older and sicker, closer to death. You're like, what's going on? Or maybe for you young people, you're waiting for that love of your life, right? All of your friends are dating. They're getting close to engagement. Maybe they're getting closer to marriage, to the altar. And you're praying, God, I believe you're more than enough. But are you going to get married? Our real life experiences of prayer doesn't seem to comport with what Jesus is saying. And so we find ourselves feeling, how are we to look at this verse without coming to the conclusion that Jesus is a liar? Right? Well, let me try to do that with a very trivial but a real personal illustration. Um, 
Sunday mornings are chaos for the Bay family, okay? Every Sunday morning, I'm focused on getting ready for Sunday, you know, reviewing my notes. And so I'm just simply not available in helping my wife with the kids. And so she's all alone getting the kids ready. Now, here's the thing you need to know about us is that when we first started in this ministry 10 years ago, it was just me and her, right? So that means when I was done preparing and I was ready to go, she was right there waiting for me, right? And we would just go, right? And then right around when we had uh, child number two, that's when things started changing. Right, because as soon as I was done, ready to go, I was like, Sarah, where are you? Right? It's like, I'm still getting ready. And I was like, what have you been doing this whole time? Right? It's like I'm getting the kids ready, I had to feed them, I had to get them dressed, I had to clean them up. It's like, for ten minutes? That's how long I had to wait. It's like ten minutes, really? We're gonna be late. And for me, honestly, no joke, from an I try to look at it from an objective standpoint, I said, ten minutes is way too long for me to wait. What is wrong with you? And of course I was like, I'm a dumb husband, right? So, and so she got mad at me. I got mad at her. We're yelling at each other in the car. And then one Sunday, not too long after that, it's funny how God does this, right? But um, I wasn't preaching one Sunday. I guess preacher was preaching, but I still had to go. And my wife had to go out of town. Uh, her dad was sick in the hospital, so she went to go visit him in Chicago, which means I had to take care of the kids and get them ready for church. You know how long it took me? 40 minutes. 40 minutes, right? And it was at that moment, it just dawned on me, my sense of objectivity over time, my assessment of time was completely off. Because here, in this moment, one moment I'm thinking 10 minutes is like 10 months, what's taking so long? And then at that moment, I was like, wow, my wife is a superstar. 10 minutes? How can you do that? Right? What's my point? The point is, sometimes we have no idea What's speedily, what's not speedily, what's fast or not fast, right? We're just so subjective here, right? If our computer takes four minutes to boot up, like, what's taking this thing so long? But we see a dude running a four-minute mile, like, whoa, that's so fast, right? We just have no real objectivity over time because who are we? We're not the Lord of time, but the one who is the Lord of time makes the promise. I will make sure that when I respond to your prayer, it will be speedily in the context of that situation because I know what's fast, I know what's slow. I'm the Lord of time. But here's the thing. Even with that said, I know that still doesn't settle some of us, right? Because even with this idea, God making this promise, how can we be so settled? How can we be so sure that God really has the future in our good interest, our good interest, to where we can really be justified in being hopeful. Because again, we're Calvinists, right? God might have ordained for us to suffer in what is to come. How can we be so sure that we can move forward in faith with optimism? You know how you can do that? By remembering the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel says God loved us so much that he became a man, Jesus Christ, and he lived the perfect life of righteousness that we should have lived but did not. He suffered the punishment we should have suffered but won't because he was our substitute savior, and he rose again as a new creation in his resurrection. Now, those are the three benefits that we see in scripture when it comes to Christ's work on the cross. But how does that exactly help us when it comes to this idea of having hope and confidence in the future? Actually. It tells us very clearly. Think about with me for just a moment. Think about these three blessings I just mentioned. 
all the punishment you deserve for your sins will be credited, has been credited, to Jesus as he paid for it on the cross. Which means what? You're no longer personally responsible for your sins. That's what forgiveness of sins is, right? All of Jesus' perfect righteousness will be credited to you, thereby giving you the right to be spared from the most permanent destructive thing ever. Everlasting condemnation, right? That's the good news of eternal life. And then, one day, you will share the hope of Jesus' resurrection to where just like his body was pervasively changed, you will be resurrected with a new changed body pervasively. And not just your body, all of creation is going to be pervasively changed where none of the corruption of sin that makes you feel so scared and anxious will be there anymore. That's the new heavens. That's the new earth. Don't you see the gospel undermines the three things that causes us to feel learned helplessness? You see? The cross gets rid of the problem of personalization. I have been forgiven. I am no longer personally responsible for sins to where God would punish me for any wrongdoing. The gospel saves me from any sort of pervasive corruption of sin because there is the promise of eternal life and a new heavens and a new earth. The gospel promises me that the most permanent, destructive thing ever, hell, is no longer something that I have to be fearful of. Right? You know, this is something that maybe you may not be aware of, but the doctrine of hell is so important. You know why? Because when we worry, when we're anxious, when we're in a crisis situation, we always imagine in our head that the thing that we're so terrified of is actually going to be our hell. The only way you stop believing that to be the level of hell destruction is by remembering there is a real hell, right, that Jesus spared you from. The existence of hell is such good news to us because the destruction and fear that we think is going to be so permanent in our lives, actually Jesus says, no, that's not hell. The real hell is much worse, and I saved you from it. Therefore, you don't have to impose the anxiety of hell onto this situation that is not nearly as hellish as the real hell, you see. This is how we overcome the anxiety, the depression, the paranoia, the fear, the sense of helplessness that is so prevalent in our society, at least from a consistent chronic standpoint. I'm not saying that as Christians we won't struggle with anxiety, won't struggle with fear and phobias and depression. We will. But when we chronically, consistently remember the gospel, it won't be a recurring, permanent, pervasive issue. Jesus ensured that the permanent and pervasive nature of evil and darkness is no longer something that you are going to have to personally pay for because that is what Jesus achieved for us on the cross. He saved us from those things. And so what do we have anything to be terrified of? What do we have to be fearful of? One of the things that we have to understand, if we really want to live out the theme of this retreat, where we can just have such joyfulness in being near the metaphorical well, well, right, where God is with us and we feel so secure and so safe, is when we chronically get into the habit of praying optimistically. And the way that you do that practically, you know how, is that you begin Every prayer, the moment you get anxious, the moment you get scared, the moment you think that things are not going to get better, the first thing you need to do is pray 
But the first thing you need to do when you start praying is first remember the gospel. Right? Let me give you a personal illustration that literally just happened to me a couple hours ago. So um, our church meets um, in a college campus, right? We don't own our own building. And as a result, you know, there are kind of like these, these rules and, 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 you know, things that we have to comply with. Right? So here I am having uh, lunch with Pastor Andrew. And I get a text from my assistant pastor like, hey, did you read that email from Laura? Laura is the point of contact uh, for our college campus. This is the lady that we go to to deal with our contracts of rental. And this is her email that she sent to me just a couple hours ago. She says, hello, pastor. I just received a call from the VP of Public Safety concerning recruiting students today during move-in. As we have discussed in the past, you are not allowed to be in the lobby or outside your contracted rooms. This seems to be an ongoing issue, and I cannot understand why since I believe I've made myself clear about this issue. Because of the actions today, you have gone beyond what is allowed, and individuals higher up are now involved. Please explain why you felt that moving tables out of solic and soliciting students was going to be acceptable, and what great areas remain so we can get them cleared prior to your contract ending. I got this a few hours ago. This is a sweet lady, but she is crazy. Right? This is not the first time she wrote an email like this. Now, when I felt, when I read this email, I felt it. I felt the email, and I could have easily fallen into this spiraling anxiety and fear, like, oh my goodness, we are going to get kicked out. Because first of all, not only is she unhappy, but her bosses are unhappy with our church. That's pervasiveness right there. The whole school is against us. And then when we do leave, we might not be able to find another location to have our church next month. And maybe the month after that, we're going to be permanently homeless. And our church is going to dissolve. And I'm going to be without a church. I can't feed my kids. My staff is going to be unemployed. It's all my fault. I must have done something wrong. I must be personally responsible. That's what I was thinking. Pervasiveness. Permanence. Personalization. What did I do? I frantically called my wife. What's going on? What's going on? I tried to call my sister pastor. He didn't pick up, which makes me really angry when he doesn't do that. Right? And then I finally heard God saying, turn off your phone, go to your room, pray. And I did. And I didn't begin by saying, God, you got to do something. Please, you got to help our church plan. I first said, God, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you that because of Jesus Christ's death on the cross, I am not personally responsible for any bad thing that happens. And even if I am, I have been forgiven. Right? And I know that even though possibly there might be a pervasive hostility of the school against us, that doesn't mean that that's going to be the same attitude if we end up needing to go somewhere else. And I have to assume that they're going to have this pervasive negative. No, because I believe you overcame death and the corruption of sin and bring the hope of the new creation. I know that this is not hell. I know that if I get unemployed, <laughs> I know that if my staff have no job, that's not permanence. That's not condemnation. Because you saved me from that 
when you died on the cross, sparing me from true, permanent despair. And then I said, now, Father, can you help Can you help our church? That is optimistic prayerfulness. That is how you have to pray and pray constantly because as you pray, it trains your hope muscles, it trains your faith muscles to not envision a nameless future that's gloom and doom, but instead, because of a historical fact, because of something Jesus did in history, on Calvary's Hill, I have a solid foundation to presume, to assume, no, even to have conviction that my future is set free that I have hope. But here's my question, Cornerstone. Is that your conviction? Do you have this conviction of hope of the future and pray optimistically and pray like this constantly, thereby strengthening your tendency to always veer towards hope and optimism, no matter how hard your life is now, no matter what tragedy is in your past, In spite of all that, can you still, because of what Jesus actually did in history, that you can now not be presumptuous, not be idealistically naive, but firm. Because of what Jesus did, I truly have hope. And therefore, I have nothing to worry about. I have nothing to be anxious about. Learned helplessness is not what my mind should be veering towards. Do you have that conviction? You know, <clears throat> this is when I would typically um, end my message and just myself go into prayer. But as I was thinking about preparing for uh, this message tonight, one of the things that I feel like um, really God is, is, is kind of compelling me to ask you to do tonight is let's spend this last night together and really spend some significant time strengthening and stretching our hope muscles, so to speak, our optimistic muscles by taking this time now to pray. I know it's kind of like a traditional Korean thing to do where the last night you pray, and I'm not saying I'm, I want to do that, but know, maybe I will, who knows. <laughs> but the point is, I do think, based on some of the things that I'm witnessing and observing, even tonight in this room, that you guys need to pray. And you guys need to go before the Lord, and you need to cultivate the mindset of of this beautiful poor widow in this story. That you need to cultivate a hopefulness and optimism to the future because of a historical fact, a historical accomplishment that Jesus did on Calvary's Hill. So would you take this time now? Maybe I can even ask uh, our grace team to come up and um, maybe uh, lead us in some, uh, some instrumentation so that we can just really kind of be in tune and utilize the gift of music that God gave us so that uh, we could uh, really invite the Spirit to help us to groan and to yearn in prayer. So um, if you don't mind, uh, I'll just lead us. And so uh, first, I just want to take this time to encourage you to first pray off the gospel to the Lord. What I just did. I, I want you to begin not first fixating on what's bothering you right now, what's making you anxious right now, what's making you terrified right now, but instead I would like for you to go to the Lord and as you pray, just recount to Him to the gospel and let that self talk kind of come back to you and strengthen the mindset that you need to have. So, can we just spend a few moments right now? Feel free to stand, to hold your hands, or just stay seated. 
to lift up your voice or to be quiet and just lift up your voice in prayer. So let's just take some time right now and ask uh, God to help us recount and to reenact the gospel as we pray to Him. So let's take some time now and let's pray. Shall we pray? As we continue to pray, um, I also want to now invite you to think about what it is right now that is terrifying you, what is making you anxious, what is making you feel so helpless. Something that in your mind maybe just seems like a permanent situation that you can't see getting better. Maybe you see it getting worse. Or a situation that is just so pervasive to where no matter where you go, no matter how far you run, it just seems to follow you wherever you are. Maybe because it's something within you, which also leads to the final struggle. Maybe it's something that you have personalized and you feel like you are so responsible and you don't deserve forgiveness. And as a result, you are just punishing yourself so much and therefore not even wanting to ask God to help because you feel like you don't even have the audacity to do that. Whatever that may be right now, can you take that to the Lord and ask Him, in light of what you confessed moments ago about the beautiful gospel, how Christ has set us free from those things, that God will now give you the freedom and the hope to boldly go before Him and just to ask for the things that you are asking for. Whether it's alleviation, whether it's restoration, whether it's reconciliation, whatever it may be, be bold now. Take this time and go before God and ask. For Jesus says in this scripture, pray day and night, come to me anytime and ask away. Would you take this time and, and receive that promise and go to God at this point and just ask what you need from your Heavenly Father. Let's pray. As we have lifted up our prayers to you tonight, Father, I'm sure many of us can go even longer, but Lord, at this time, we want to just first of all acknowledge your goodness and your grace. Even though the enemy, even now, is whispering in our ears that you are no good and you have failed, Father, we know that the cross refutes that, irrefutably refutes that line of Satan. And so, Lord, we pray that you would hear our prayers that were lifted up. First, oh God, help us to always remember the gospel. That as we pray to you, it would be an opportunity of preaching the gospel to ourselves. That we would preach before the audience of our great God so that you could affirm and that you could strengthen us by your spirit of the words that we say that come out of our mouths and strengthen the eyes of our heart, the eyes of faith. Because, Lord, you know where we're at. You know the struggles that we've had. You know even the situation that we're in right now to where as we look off into this imaginary horizon of our future, it just seems so dark and so gloomy and so hopeless. But, Lord, help us to see beyond that. Help us to see the glorious horizons of the new heavens and the new earth that it was established for us by something that is so permanent where the effects of it is so pervasive and it has now been personally applied and credited to us. Help us to see the hope of the kingdom of heaven. Help us to see the glorious Christ who has saved us from the dread of the pervasiveness and the permanence of sin and destruction and condemnation. 
and therefore the personal responsibility to pay these things. Father, we have been ransomed by all of these things. We have been redeemed. And so, Father, we pray that whatever Satan or our flesh is tempted to believe, things that are agitated by the world that curse at us, condemn us, whether it's manifested in the circumstances that we have to face, the difficulties, the trials, the temptation, or even in the difficult people in our lives who hurt us, Father, help us to move beyond these things and see the greater horizon, the greater reality that is more real than this reality. Help us to see the truth of the hope of the resurrection, the hope of the gospel. God, you know where my brothers and sisters here at Cornerstone are at. You know where they're at as a church. You know where they're at in their families. You know where they're at in their own individual hearts. And Lord, we know that you are the only one who could bring healing and restoration. So, Father, would you bring that healing hand as the great physician as you are? Would you help my brothers and sisters? Would you help all of us? Would you help me to not fall into the, the lack of faith, the doubtfulness of learned helplessness, but instead have optimistic hope because of your son Jesus and the work of his spirit that has been made effective because of of Jesus. Would you help us to really live that? Do that work now and continue its work in our hearts so that with each passing day we come closer to a future that is not what we envision it to be, but the future that you have planned because you are our powerful, loving Heavenly Father who is already there waiting for us to come with joy and peace. God, would you help us to believe that now? For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.